A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of abuse and beheading. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the jinn. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about these powerful spirits for dramatic effect. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters. For centuries, humans have been telling stories about fantastical beasts as a way of explaining the chaotic world around them. Each week, we examine one of these legends. Though they may be ancient, these tales can still teach us important lessons about the deep-seated fears that plague us to this day. Today, we're examining a powerful entity from the mythology of ancient Islam. In the Western world, they're known as genies, but across the Middle East, they're known as the jinn. They're a race of shape-shifting spirits who control the lives of humans through their awesome and multifaceted magical powers. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up, we'll dive into the history of the gin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To much of the Western world, genies are fictional servants who live in magic lamps until they emerge to grant the wishes of humans. But to those who practice the faith of Islam, the jinn are very real. They exist alongside us, affecting our lives in unseen ways, sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. They appear in the Quran and the Hadiths, ancient texts that document the words and deeds of the prophet Muhammad. According to those texts, the jinn stand alongside angels and mankind as the three fundamental classes of beings. The angels were created from light, humans were crafted from mud, and the jinn were made from smokeless fire. Like fire, they can spring up or disappear in an instant. Some can change their size, while others are shapeshifters with the ability to contort themselves into all sorts of chimeric beasts. Today, many Muslims around the world believe that the jinn live alongside us. There are hidden counterparts, shadows lurking in neglected parts of our world. Like angels, they possess tremendous power, but unlike those celestial counterparts, the jinn possess free will. In this case, they're similar to mankind. They can be violent, kind, murderous, or generous. They're the unseen authors of our destiny, unpredictable spirits who write the stories of our lives, sometimes in gold and sometimes in blood. (laughs) 
Zine gazed out at the bay. He was too old for days like this. He'd already cast his net three times and still hadn't caught a single fish. He supposed that some days were just fated to be fruitless. Zine took a deep breath and began pulling up his net once more. As it emerged from the water, he noticed the glint of metal. He untangled the linen mesh to reveal a small copper bottle. His heart skipped a beat. This much copper might sell for four or even five dinars. Zine examined the bottle and saw that it had been sealed with a lead cap and stamped with an archaic seal. He took out his knife and after a few minutes, managed to pop off the cap. A cloud of thick white smoke poured out of the bottle. Zine dropped it, but the smoke kept coming, causing the little bottle to spin around. Zine backed away as the smoke took the form of a man. He was pot-bellied with sparse, wiry black hair sprouting from his cheeks and chin. White fangs like tusks protruded from his thin yellow lips. Two flesh-covered appendages sprung from his head like some kind of hideous, skin-covered antlers. The man's eyes were deep black pits with dancing orange flames for pupils. He turned to Zine and asked in a voice like thunder, Why do you look so pale? Haven't you ever seen an Ifrit before? Zine shook his head. He had never seen an Ifrit, but he had heard of them. They were one of several classes of jinn, one of the most dangerous, in fact. Zine knew that it was best not to show fear in such circumstances, so he cleared his throat and asked, Are you going to give me three wishes? The Ifrit's lips curled into a hideous imitation of a smile. Just the one, he chuckled. I will let you choose how you wish to die. One of the most comprehensive jinn origin stories comes from the 10th century Islamic historian Abul Hassan Ali ibn al-Hussein al-Masudi. In his work, Meadows of Gold, al-Masudi describes how the first female jinn gave birth to a clutch of 31 eggs, and each one hatched into a different tribe of jinn. Each tribe of jinn possesses slightly different powers and attributes. There were the sinister Sheotin, the powerful Marid, and the rebellious Ifrits. Some can control the natural world, summoning forth windstorms or great pillars of flame. Others can read thoughts, cause illness, or conjure incredible illusions. A subclass called ghouls are similar to ghosts, haunting houses and wreaking havoc on the living. According to legend, God first gave the jinn dominion over the earth. But after thousands of years, they grew proud and disobedient. God sent the angels to punish the jinn, destroying many and dispersing the rest to distant lands. There was one jinn who avoided banishment. His name was Iblis, and he was so eloquent that God brought him into heaven and allowed him to stand beside the angels. But Iblis was proud, and his celestial status did not last long. 
God soon created Adam, the first man, and placed him in charge of all creation. When Iblis refused to bow to Adam, he was banished to hell, along with the jinn who followed him. Now, Iblis is the Islamic equivalent of the Christian Satan. He and his followers whisper in the ears of humans, urging them to commit sins and acts of evil. But not all jinn followed Iblis to hell. The rest live in a world called Kof, a realm surrounded by an enormous ring of impassable emerald mountains. The 9th century historian Al-Tabari describes Kof as a place without a sun or moon. The only light comes from the mountains themselves. Kof exists parallel to our own world, a mystical bridge between us and the supernatural. But while very few humans have ever entered Kof, the jinn are less restricted. When they do cross into the human world, anything can happen. Zine looked up at the Ifrit in horror. Kill me, he gasped, but I released you. The Ifrit gave a booming laugh. Indeed, you did, he said. My name is Ashmedai. For 100 years, I pictured the riches I would heap upon the man who freed me from that bottle. I decided I would be his servant and attend to his every whim. Then another hundred years passed, and I decided to give the man three wishes and be on my way. After another hundred years, I grew bitter. I decided the only wish I would grant him would be to choose the manner of his death. So, how would you like to die? Zine was about to start pleading for his life when a thought occurred to him. He'd heard stories from his wife about Ifrit's. Farida said they could be easily tricked if you appealed to their pride. He picked up the empty bottle and asked, If I've angered your excellence, then I certainly deserve to die. But first I must know how such a magnificent being could fit in this tiny bottle. It was simply incredible. I'd give anything to see it again. Ashmedai just shrugged, but Zine didn't give up. He peered into the bottle and wondered how it could contain the Ifrit's bulging muscles. He begged to see the trick just once more. Finally, Ashmedai crossed his arms and with a faint smile, he said, Fine, if you insist, I will show you. A great whirlwind blew around them. The Ifrit faded into a cloud of thick white smoke. His features disappeared as he funneled into the bottle. As the last wisp disappeared, Zine shoved in the stopper. The vessel shook as the genie howled with rage, but Zine held on tight. He didn't let go until the stopper was firmly set into the copper bottle. He shouted, I'm going to throw you back into the ocean and tell every fisherman within a hundred miles to stay away from this place. As Zine reached back to hurl the bottle into the sea, he heard a voice come out of it. Wait, cried the genie. I was testing you. Congratulations, you passed. If you let me out now, I'll give you anything you want. Zine laughed. 
As if I'd ever trust an Efrit. You're probably so fat because of all the human children you eat. I would never, Ashmedai growled from inside the bottle. When have you ever heard of a jinny eating children? It's a lie. Zine put the bottle down and scratched his chin. Well, that may have been an exaggeration, but I know plenty of stories about Jin behaving in all sorts of horrible ways. The Ifrit gave an affronted snort and said, Okay then, let's hear one. Zine stroked his chin and sat down. There's the story of my cousin Hassan, he said slowly, and I know his story is true. I saw the result with my own eyes. Go on, said the Ifrit. Zine looked out across the ocean and began. My mother's brother had a son named Hassan, a timid young man with a thin frame and a scholarly disposition. He wasn't much use in a fight, but he was known for his skill in calligraphy. When my uncle died, Hassan had to go to work. His story begins on his first day as a woodcutter. Hassan had always been bad with directions. His mother had told him where to find ash trees, but he'd been wandering through the mountains for hours and was starting to think he might be lost. He was about to give up when he noticed the stump of a large ash tree at the top of a nearby hill. A stump was better than nothing. His mother probably hadn't expected much anyway. He wasn't made to be a woodcutter and they both knew it. He hated the outdoors, could barely lift an axe, and was afraid of most living creatures. His father had always encouraged him to be brave, but now he was gone and Hassan had to face the world on his own. Hassan set aside his axe and began to clear away the dirt at the base of the stump. As he did, he felt something smooth. He brushed away the earth to reveal a large brass ring set into a flat gray stone. He pulled on the ring and heard the squeal of ancient hinges. The stone lifted to reveal a curving stairwell. Hassan peered down into it. He could make out an underground room with a rounded door set into one wall. He took a deep breath and crept hesitantly down the staircase. Hassan examined the door and saw that it was locked from the outside. Whatever was on the other side, someone wanted to keep it from getting out. Hassan shivered. He wanted to run away, but he heard his father's voice from somewhere deep inside him. It told him that if he left now, the question of what lay on the other side would haunt him all his life. Hassan took a deep breath and unbarred the door. As it swung open, Hassan gasped. Inside was the most incredible room he'd ever seen. The ceilings were inlaid with colorful mosaics of jade and carnelian. Satin draperies hung on the walls, and silk cushions were strewn about the thick carpets. A young woman sat in a corner with her legs crossed. Her dark hair fell away as she looked up, and Hassan's heart skipped a beat. He'd never seen anyone so beautiful. 
The girl smiled and said, Please do come in. You're the first human I've seen in 15 years. Coming up, Hassan learns the identity of the mysterious woman. Hi, listeners. Here's a series I think you're really going to like. We all know that medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? In the new ParCast series, Medical Murders, you'll discover a disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Murden as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers. Dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Zine was interrupted by an irritated voice. Hold on a minute. You said this story was about a Ginny. He looked down at the copper vessel in his hand. He'd almost forgotten that he was talking to an Ifrit trapped in a bottle. Zine frowned and said, I'm getting to that part. Now, if you would quit interrupting. The Ifrit apologized. Zine began again. As I was saying, on my cousin's first day as a woodcutter, he chanced upon a hidden underground door. He unlocked it to find a magnificent palace and the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. The girl rushed over to Hassan and took his hand. She introduced herself as Shireen and told Hassan that her father was King Ifitamus. Fifteen years earlier, she'd been engaged to marry the son of a nobleman. She seated herself on one of the cushions and recounted her story. It was the night before my wedding when I heard a shrieking wind outside my room. I went to the balcony and saw a whirlwind forming out over the sea. I tried to run, but I was swept up in it and hit my head against a marble pillar. The next thing I knew, I was here, lying next to a six-foot Ginny with orange skin. He visits me every tenth day. Then Shireen pointed to a few lines of ancient script carved over the doorway. If I need to summon him, I just pass my hand over that inscription. I can show you if you'd like. Hassan's eyes widened and he shook his head. Shireen laughed and told him that she was only joking. Hassan stuttered, There must be something we can do. I can go to the caliph and he can send his army. 
Shireen took his hand and replied, The jinni is cousin to Iblis. No army on earth could defeat him, but he just left me. The next nine days are mine, and I'd like to spend them with you. Over the next nine days, Hassan discovered that Shireen was clever and witty. He'd never met anyone like her. She seemed to make everything fun, and their time together passed in a blur of happiness. On the night before the jinni was to return, Shireen took out a pitcher of wine. She poured them both a glass and said, "'Tomorrow you will have to leave, but until then, let's forget our troubles. What do you say?' Hassan's heart ached. He wished he could set her free somehow, but he knew he'd never have the courage. He took the glass of wine and gave a toast to forgetting troubles. They drank away the afternoon. As he sat with Shireen, Hassan no longer felt like a failure. He watched as she wiped away tears of laughter. She was the best person he'd ever met. He knew that if he let this moment pass, he'd never forgive himself. Hassan leaned forward and kissed her. She kissed him back passionately. Then Hassan took her face in his hands and whispered, I'm not going to let the Ifrit keep you prisoner. I'm going to defeat him. Shireen's face blanched. She shook her head, but Hassan ignored her. His father had been right about him. He was brave enough. He'd found the hidden room and kissed the Ginny's woman. There was nothing he couldn't do. Hassan stumbled up to the inscription above the door and smacked it. It glowed blue as the room went dark and began to fill with smoke. A booming voice came from everywhere at once. Who dares summon me? The ground shook. Hassan's stomach clenched in fear. He'd made a terrible mistake. Fear overtook him as he backed out the door. Before he knew it, he was running up the stairs. Every footstep was followed by the terrible sound of Shireen's screams. When Hassan got home, he was shaking like a leaf. His mother embraced him and asked where he'd been. Hassan didn't say a word. The next morning, Hassan's mother told him a man had come to see him. Hassan frowned and she explained, he came across your axe and wanted to return it. Hassan went pale. Before he could respond, a crack formed in the floor, quickly turning into a deep chasm. The thing that rose out of it had dull orange skin. Blue flames sprung from its scalp, and its eyes were black pits. It spoke in a voice like nails on slate. Hassan of Basra, your mother tells me it is your axe that was left outside my wife's chambers. The jinni snapped his fingers and the room filled with smoke. He snapped them again and the smoke disappeared, revealing the underground palace. 
Shireen was huddled in a corner. Her clothes were torn and bloody, and her body was covered in deep purple welts. Hassan's eyes filled with tears. This was his fault. The genie turned to Shireen and asked, Is this your lover? Shireen shook her head, and the jinni bared his sharp teeth. He pulled a scimitar from his belt and held it out to her. Then you won't mind cutting off his head. Shireen shook her head again and replied, I could never kill an innocent stranger. The jinni smiled wickedly. He handed the sword to Hassan and said, In that case, you can kill her. If you refuse, I'll flay you alive and roll you in salt. Hassan looked at the jinni. He wanted to be brave, but he was a coward and he always would be. He took the sword and turned towards Shireen. She looked up at him and for a moment he felt like he could read her mind. She seemed to be saying, Please, I know you are better than this. I know you can be brave. With a lump in his throat, Hassan turned to the jinni and said, Do as you must. I will not harm her. The jinni roared with rage. He swept the sword from Hassan's hands and seized Shireen by the hair. Blood sprayed the cushions as he severed her head. He tossed it into the corner and said, She was a cheating harlot and deserved to die. Since I cannot prove you were her lover, I will let you live, but you cannot go unpunished. Hassan closed his eyes. Shireen's death was his doing. He deserved whatever punishment he got. Hassan felt a cold, tingling sensation run down his spine. He opened his eyes and looked down at his hands. He tried to scream, but the sound that came out was the screech of a monkey. His hands were furry paws. The jinni had turned him into a baboon. Like many of the most popular jinn stories, the tale of the princess in the underground palace comes from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. The earliest known manuscript for the Nights dates back to the 15th century, but the tales themselves are much older. The collection has been traced back as early as the 8th century, when the first versions were transcribed from the folk tales of Persia, India, and Arabia. In the framing device, Shahrazada marries a king who has declared that he will wed a new bride each day only to behead her in the morning. To keep herself alive, she tells the king a series of stories that always end with a cliffhanger just before her proposed execution. The characters within those narratives are often faced with similar dilemmas. They must tell their own tales, which revolve around yet another set of characters telling even more stories. 
This constant stream of stories puts its protagonists at an intersection between fate and free will. They think they have the ability to make their own choices, but we know they don't. They're characters in a story that has already happened. Hassan's fate is not a result of his nobility or cowardice. It was sealed the moment he crossed a jinni and was drawn into a story larger than himself. As Zin finished his story, the Ifrit laughed from inside the bottle. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Of course I do, Zin replied calmly. I've seen my cousin. He's a baboon now, a baboon who's excellent at calligraphy. The Ifrit chuckled. Oh, I don't doubt that a jinni turned your cousin into a baboon, but I'm not buying the rest. Your cousin sounds like a self-important ass, if you ask me. I bet he did something terrible to anger the jinni. Zine started to protest, but thought better of it. Truth be told, his cousin was a bit of an ass. The Ifrit continued, I can tell you a much more believable story about a jinni who's just as good as that one is bad. Zine rolled his eyes and said, I doubt it, but I suppose I can't stop you. He lay down on the sand and put the bottle near his head. The Ifrit cleared his throat and began, There was once a jeweler in Cairo. He had a son named Ali who was either quite brave or quite stupid. Personally, I suspect that he was both. When his father died, Ali was devastated by the loss, but he was even more devastated to find that the only thing his wealthy father had left him was one worthless property, an old house in Baghdad. Ali arrived in Baghdad late at night. He was exhausted, and all he wanted was a hot meal and a bed. As his father's property came into view, his heart sank. The house was enormous, with an ornately carved facade and a wide balcony. It was also a wreck. The shutters were falling off, the lawn was completely overgrown, and there was a hole in the roof. It was just like his father to leave a property in this state. The next morning, Ali woke early and went to see the caretaker. He made his way to a shabby building where he was greeted by a wizened old man in a tattered linen mantle. The man introduced himself as Harun and led Ali into a dim room furnished with a few square cushions. Once they were settled, Ali turned to the old man and said, I must admit I had hoped the house might be in better condition. Harun looked down at his hands and said, I'm so sorry. I know the house is falling apart, but it is impossible to repair. Ali stared at him in confusion, and Harun continued, Years ago, I hired servants and instructed them to stay in the house. The first to move in was the gardener. We found him on the lawn with his neck snapped. We thought it was just a tragic accident. Then two more moved in, a man and a woman. She was found in the courtyard fountain. He was hanging from the balcony. 
An imam told us it was the work of a jinni. Fourteen people have died in that house. Eventually, I couldn't even find anyone to drag the bodies out. I had to cut a hole in the roof and pull the last one out with ropes. Ali shook his head in disbelief. He couldn't think of anything to say, so he just thanked Haroon and told him his services were no longer needed. As he turned to leave, Haroon called after him. If you set foot inside that house, it will be the last thing you ever do. Ali shook his head. The house was the only thing his father had left him, and he was not about to surrender it to anyone. Coming up, Ali spends the night in a cursed mansion. Now, back to the story. Zine peered into the bottle. The Ifrit inside had abruptly gone silent. Are you okay in there? Zine asked. I was pausing for effect, the Ifrit grumbled. Humans have no idea how to tell a good story. Now, where was I? Ah, yes. Ali had come to Baghdad to sell the decrepit old house he'd inherited from his father, and the caretaker told him that anyone who set foot inside would be killed by an evil jinni. Humans can be so prejudiced sometimes. Ali ignored the caretaker's warning. He didn't know whether or not he believed in jinn, but he wasn't surprised that his father had hired a lunatic to look after his property. He probably thought he was doing the old man a kindness. That was just like him. Ali pushed open the old wooden doors and peered inside the old house. The once grand entryway had fallen into ruin. He made his way through to the courtyard, where he averted his eyes from the well, where the servant girl had died. As Ali walked through the house, he heard a repetitive thumping coming from the second floor. A chill ran up his spine. Perhaps there was something to the rumors. His hands closed into fists. If the house really was haunted by a jinni, it was probably his father's fault. It would be just like him to invite a jinni into his home thinking he was being nice. There was only one thing for it. Ali took a deep breath and started up the steps. When he got to the top of the stairs, Ali saw a flickering light at the end of the hall. His heart raced. Perhaps it was foolish to take on a jinni alone, but it was his only option. He stepped into the doorway. Ali sank against a wall and chuckled. The wind was blowing a loose shutter back and forth. There was no jinni. He latched the shutter and looked around the bedroom. Unlike most of the other rooms in the house, it was still furnished. Ali made a decision. He would stay the night. Ali spent the rest of the day pulling weeds out of the garden. He ate a meal of cold lamb awarma and then retired. As he drifted off to sleep, he thought of his father. Ali wanted to be angry with him, 
But grief threatened to overwhelm him every time he pictured the man's warm brown eyes and the way they crinkled when he smiled. Ali awoke with a start. At first, he thought that the shutter had come unlatched again, but as he sat up and rubbed the sleep from his eyes, he realized that he was hearing a low hissing. A strange red light was glowing from the hallway. Ali jumped out of bed and grabbed his sword. He stood trembling in the middle of the room. A figure appeared in the doorway, and Ali's breath caught in his throat. A glowing six-foot cobra slithered into the room. Its eyes were an unearthly shade of gold, and enormous black wings sprouted from its back. Ali gripped the sword and readied himself for the fight of his life. Then, to his astonishment, the cobra began to speak. Ali of Cairo, son of Maruf, should I bring you your gold? Ali took a step back. The cobra looked at him and asked again, Well, should I? Ali knitted his brow and stammered out, Yes, please? The snake nodded. There was a crack of thunder. To Ali's astonishment, gold coins began to rain down from the ceiling. The gold poured forth until it lay three feet deep on the floor. Ali looked at the snake and asked, Who are you? The snake flicked its tail and hissed a reply. Many years ago, I saw your father stop to help an injured man. He was poor and dirty, and plenty of people walked right past him. But your father took him back here and cared for him. I'd never seen such kindness. I wanted to reward it. For years, I watched from the shadows. I followed him to Cairo, saw him get married and have a son. Then, when you were 15, I saw what I could do. I would ensure that you became as good a man as he was. You were very privileged, and I knew if you never endured hardship, you could never learn kindness. I revealed myself to your father and told him I wanted to guard his fortune until you were ready. Eventually, he agreed. So I came here and built up a reputation for the house. You would come here once you were destitute, believing your father had forsaken you and you would have to face a curse. If you could do that, it would mean you were the man your father always wanted you to be. Ali dropped his sword and his eyes filled with tears. His father had always been unconventional, but he was the kindest person Ali knew. This was just like him. When Ashmedai finished his story, Zine frowned and said, how does that prove that jinn are good? That one killed 14 innocent people. The Ifrit scoffed. Perhaps, but it was for a good cause. Zine rolled his eyes. A good cause, he chuckled. 
tell me, do you know any stories about Jin who didn't kill any humans? He could almost hear Ashmedai grinning as he launched into another tale. Jin may be extraordinarily powerful, but they lead lives that are shockingly similar to our own. They get married, have children, and die just as we do. There are even stories of Jin holding legal courts that are surprisingly human for such almighty spirits. Islam teaches that both humans and jinn are born in a state of purity. They have free will and can choose to accept God and live a virtuous life or reject him and lead a life of sin. That so many jinn have a reputation for evil is probably a virtue of their mythological origins rather than an inherent aspect of their nature. The Islamic jinn evolved from much older deities scattered across deserts of the Arabian Peninsula. Some belonged to the nomadic Bedouin tribes, while others were worshipped by early civilizations like the Sumerians and Akkadians. Some of these were nature spirits who embodied the harsh desert landscape. To the Bedouins, snakes and scorpions were a part of everyday life, but when these desert deities made their way into ancient cities, they became terrifying symbols of a dangerous, foreign wasteland. As the religion of Islam spread across the Middle East, the gods of old were refashioned as jinn. Some were seen as malevolent, but many were too beloved to fully morph into evil monsters. One such god was a Bedouin protector charged with protecting caravans. He became the popular and beloved jinni Shai al-Qom, or protector of the people. By turning these popular deities into jinn, the Islamic faith allowed converts to keep the characters they knew so well. The all-powerful gods of the past become friendly faces who lived alongside mankind. The fishermen and the jinn spent the afternoon trading one story after another. Ashmedai was an engaging storyteller and a pleasant companion. As the hours passed, Zine realized that he was not looking forward to throwing the bottle into the ocean. If only the Ifrit were not so dangerous, he would be happy to go on listening to his tales. Finally, as the sun began to dip below the horizon, Ashmedai paused. So I've been thinking, he said. Maybe instead of throwing me into the ocean, you could keep me in a box or on a shelf. I could be happy on a shelf. Zine laughed and said, you would not be happy on a shelf. He picked up the bottle and examined it. He knew that what he was about to do was incredibly foolish. The ghastly, flame-eyed Ifrit could probably smite him in the time it took to open the bottle. But Ashmedai's stories had convinced him. Jinn were not evil, at least not all Jinn. Some could be cruel and terrible, but they could also be brave and generous. As for whether Ashmedai was good or evil, well, Zine would know soon enough. He took a deep breath and uncapped the lead cork. A great wind began to blow as smoke billowed out of the bottle. 
As Ashmedai began to materialize, Zine felt his knees grow weak. The thing looming over him was huge and terrifying, but as Zine looked into the dancing flames of its eyes, he breathed a sigh of relief. His expression was not the angry grimace of a demon, but the smile of a friend. Ashmedai leapt into the sky and flew off over the ocean like a cloud. As Zine watched him disappear, a sack appeared at his feet. Zine opened it up and his heart nearly stopped. It was filled with gold pieces. Zine looked after the Ifrit and shook his head. He supposed that even at his age, there were still plenty of surprises left in the world. The jinn possess many great powers, but few are as important as their skill with poetry. One 7th century poet who was a favorite of the Prophet Muhammad maintained that all his verses were inspired by jinn, and he was not alone. In fact, the word genius may have its roots in the Ginai, protective deities of Palmyra. These early forms of jinn protected and guided humans they favored. They were the genius of their lucky wards. The jinn live in an alternate reality that exists alongside ours. When they find their way into our world, they can either gift us great treasure or terrible violence. Whatever they choose, they use their powerful hands to shape our stories. Despite their incredible powers, jinn are not angels or gods. They have stepped down off their pedestals to roll around in the dirt with us, trading in divinity for free will. The fact that they have foibles and failings makes any interaction with these spirits exciting and unpredictable. Just like our own species, they always find a way to surprise you. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Jin, amongst the many sources we used, we found Legends of the Fire Spirits, Jin and Genies from Arabia to Zanzibar by Robert Lebling, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. Don't forget to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.